Hi, everyone. Welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Andrea Pearson, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Joe Lalo. And I'm Lindsay Baroker. And I about muted myself there. <laughs> like, I'm done. <laughs> um, we've got an awesome guest this week. I'm really excited. Um, joining us today is USA Today bestselling author Serena B. Miller. Serena lives in Ohio near the largest Old Amish settlement in the world. Her fascination with this culture led her led to her first published book, Love's Journey in Sugar Creek, Ohio, which became the basis for the award-winning movie Love's Fi- Love Finds You in Sugar Creek. A movie based on her second Amish novel, An Uncommon Grace, was recently filmed for the Hallmark Channel. In addition to her Amish books, she's written a lumber camp historical series, which includes The Measure of Kate Calloway, and, which won the Reader Award for Inspirational Fiction, A Promise to Love, which won American Christian Fiction um, let's see, Carol Award for Best Historical Fiction and Under a Blackberry Moon, which was a finalist for the Christie Award. Before, become, before writing full-length novels, Serena worked as a court reporter in Detroit, Michigan, while writing numerous articles for periodicals such as Women's World, Guideposts, Reader's Digest, Focus on the Family, Christian Woman, and more. And you can go to her website, Serena B. Miller, to learn more.com. To learn more.com. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, welcome to the show, Serena. Thanks. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Um, and it's kind of fun because we, all three of us, actually all four of us, I was going to say the three co-hosts of the show um, and, well, Serena, we actually all met at the Oregon Writers Coast, mm-hmm. the Oregon Coast Writers Conference thingy, whatever that thing was. It's still the same thing, but it's now in Vegas. The uh, Business Masterclass, right? Is that what it is? Yes. Yeah. yes. Anyway, so it's been like three years and um, I was doing my little evening marketing chats and Serena came to one and I asked her where she was from and she said, Ohio. And we just, my husband, my kids and I, we'd just barely gone to Ohio. And I was like, really? I just, I just read this book in Ohio and it's called love finds you and sugar Creek or watch this movie or whatever. And she was, she, I was like, do you know the author of that book? Cause she'd said she was, you know, she wrote Amish fiction and that she lived near Amish people. And she was like, uh, that was me. It was, it was, it was a fangirl moment for me and I do not fangirl. Like I've never fangirl over an author I've met ever. So <laughs> so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty awesome. Anyway. So I'm really excited to have Serena on the show today. She's, we're going to be talking to her about um, her Amish and about the, the Hallmark and other movie that she's had done. Um, Love finds you in sugar Creek, which by the way, for those who are listening is actually a really good movie. I loved it. Mm. And um, the book of course is very good too. And, um, yeah, so really, really excited. And, uh, Serena, if you're okay with that, I'm just going to go ahead and start right into the questions. Okay. Sure. Okay. So, um, what got you into writing and also indie publishing? Um, like most writers, I always wanted to write, but, um, I think the thing that got me into the indie publishing was just, I had a son, you've met him, Jacob, who had, was capable of doing everything that traditional publishers were doing for me. And we were already doing most of our marketing, as you know. And so it just seemed to make sense to start to go indie. But I did write for the uh, traditionals. I wrote four books for Simon & Schuster, a uh, couple, no, three books for Baker Books in Grand Rapids, and then one for Guidepost. So... I have had the traditional experience. I learned a lot from the editors. That's um, That was a good learning experience for me. But then it was just made sense to go indie, and we've really enjoyed it. The other thing was, with the whole indie thing, was uh, my husband was very ill, and meeting those deadlines was awful when he was real sick. So um, 
going indie was also real helpful for our family as well. Getting into writing, when was I not writing? You know, it just, I was a slow bloomer though. It took me about 11 years to get published traditionally. And then, um, and I had just turned 60 when I finally managed to break into print. So, um, it's, it's been an interesting 10 years since that first book came out. A lot of neat things have happened. Awesome. And how many books do you have indie published now versus traditionally published? I have nine uh, indie books published and I had seven traditional books. I got my rights back from one of them. That's awesome that you, uh, you made it at 60. Like it's one of the great <laughs> things about being a writer is not like you ever have to give up on your dream, like being a pro athlete or something. If you're, if you're 30, forget it. <laughs> oh, it's so true. You know, that was one of the first things that struck me when I went to my first romance writers of America conference, which was up in New York city. And I was <clears throat> still such a novice. I hadn't sold anything yet, but I looked around me and I thought, Oh, this, this is my place because you don't have to you don't have to be any age. You don't have to be um, a beauty. You don't have to be anything except you just need to be able to put those words on the page and do it well. And it's it's such a equal opportunity job in my eyes. But I yeah, I was very worried about my age. And then I found out no, there's people being published in their nineties. I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, so it looks like you're doing fine. Um, so you've got a variety of genres in your backlist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Andrea mm-hmm. mentioned Amish romance, lumberjack mm-hmm. romance, and um, mm-hmm. maybe contemporary mysteries also. Mm-hmm. What has kind of prompted you to jump around and has that posed any challenges? Um, it has not posed any challenges. It has kept things fresh for me. And it seems like my readers, my fans, for the most part, just read whatever I write. You know, they seem to be kind of loyal to the brand Serena B. Miller. Um, if there's been any problems, I don't know about them. But the reason I did that was I had a literary agent and she was the one who first got me uh, published in Amish. And it was kind of funny. I was writing Christian uh, suspense at the time. I had three books with her and she uh, was trying to shop them around. And finally, she came back to me one day. She called me. And she said, um, I have an editor who likes your writing, but um, she doesn't want your suspense. She said, your name is Miller. You live in Ohio. She wants to know if you have, if you know anybody who's Amish. And at that time, I had been working for 11 years, putting things out, trying to get published. And so my, um, my answer to her was, I don't know any Amish people, but I will find me some. Just tell her I will find some. And so uh, I wrote up a proposal. Um, she was very interested in it. And I went to, um, it was part of a series because it was called the uh, Finding Love In series. And they were trying to get, the publisher was trying to get authors from every state in the union to write a book set in things like Hershey, Pennsylvania or Poetry, Texas. And there was about 50 books by the time it was finished that were done. And I was just part of that series. They assigned me Sugar Creek, Ohio. And I went up and was um, lucky enough to be taken in by an Amish family, a long story. And they basically said, <clears throat> you can ask us any question. They were old order Amish. But after they found out what I was trying to do, they said, you can ask us any question you want. Nothing is forbidden. Just write the truth about us because there's been so many non-truths. 
said about us. And so that's what I tried to do. So writing Amish was probably the farthest thing from my mind at the time, but it's what kind of kickstarted my career. And then uh, on the heels of that, my agent was talking to people at Baker Books and they asked if I could write historical. And that had actually been something I'd always wanted to do. And so I broached an idea. I'd always been interested in the lumber camps. We'd lived in Michigan for a long time. And the 1800s lumber camp series, uh, which was post-Civil War, <clears throat> was fascinating to me. And so I sold three books to them on that. It was basically I was doing well, whatever my agent asked me to do. And, um, you know, I still... Uh, you know, then I had the contemporary mystery series that I put out and it keeps, like I said, it keeps things fresh. I, I, I like writing in different genres because it's just a different mindset, different mood. It's a, you know, evidence of some significant skill that you can just sort of be assigned that what would, you know, by most measures be considered an extremely niche genre and be able to, to excel. Like it's, it's a, a test of writing skill that you passed apparently repeatedly. So, uh, something I'm interested in is like, if you say like, uh, you know, the new genres keep things fresh for you, are there any genres you're still interested in that you haven't dabbled in yet? Yes, I do have, um, I have five granddaughters and four of them are under the age of seven. And I have been reading all these little children's books to them. <clears throat> and I am going to be starting a, a children's series before long. And it will be based on the Amish knowledge that I have. And uh, my seven-year-old granddaughter is very, very into this. And so, yeah, I will be working with the children's series and we'll see how it goes. I've been doing some research in it, got my notes, and uh, hopefully I'll be bringing one book out per month next year in that series in addition to the other ones it'll they'll be much shorter novels of course so um your amish books um actually any of your books what what is the pricing structure you've set up for the ones that you're in control of and i mean and how have you have you seen um i mean have you experimented with that at all <laughs> okay andrea um that's a question i wish jacob were here for because he is my son is my partner, and he's my publisher, and I don't pay a whole lot of attention to it. He's the one that worries about and watches the the um, algorithms and pricing and all that. And so, and it depends on page count. So I can't begin to answer that. I'm sorry. So should I text him and, and then see if he answers? <laughs> yeah, do, please. <laughs> okay. I'll do that right now and tell him he's going to be yeah. on whether he likes it or not. Yeah. Yeah. Do that. <laughs> so, um, how, I mean, how is the Amish marketing market doing now? I mean, I, I d used to devour Amish books, but it's been a while since I did. So mm -hmm. I haven't paid attention. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, according to K Kalytics, it's, um, and this is very recent, it's still a very hot niche and, um, people continue to buy. And it seems like it's a very, very loyal readership. <clears throat> it's not huge, but the ones that buy Amish really buy Amish. Um, I, you know, I've, I've had a lot of conversations with other authors and even some of the booksellers up in uh, Michigan about why, uh, you know, for, and when the Amish bubble started, we thought <clears throat> it's going to last for a year or two. You know, we didn't know. And it just keeps building. <clears throat> and I think part of it is because life is really scary right now. 
and going into an Amish, but one girl told me, she said, it feels safe. When I'm reading an Amish novel, it feels safe to me. And I think it's um, kind of a comfort to a lot of people, just like watching Hallmark movies. It's a comfort, you know, to watch them, even if there's the sameness about them. Yeah, I think there's a lot of desire sometimes to kind of immerse yourself in a simpler time. I remember reading all the Laura Ingalls Wilder books as a kid too, and just mm-hmm. like you wish you were back there. And mm-hmm. especially, especially now, the world's gotten pretty crazy. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So, and the Amish, the Amish communities seem to be kind of—they <clears throat> don't watch news. Um, they don't seem to be particularly worried about anything. You know, they're just going about their business. And I was talking to the um, <clears throat> Amish community closest to me, which is about a half hour away. And I was there um, talking to one of my friends and I asked her, I said, have you had any COVID at all? Because right now the county I'm in is an absolute hot spot. And she's like, no, we haven't had any at all. So I don't know how they're escaping it, but <clears throat> Yeah, they're just going on and living their lives and having a lovely time. So, which is kind of nice to tap into. Yeah, I suppose if you weren't uh, doing the testing and stuff, how would you even know? Like, oh, Ma's just got the flu. It's all right. She's all right. (laughs) (laughs) They're doing good. (laughs) Well, she said they had a stomach flu going around, but, you know, it wasn't any of the COVID uh, symptoms. So, I guess they're okay. But I did mask and stay away from her just to make sure. Sure. So I, I'm curious, I was going to ask about the Amish charts, but you sounds like your son is the one who monitors that stuff. So I'm going to ask you about the lumberjack stuff because oh. as, as a kid, I, uh, you know, you always went to the used bookstore and you get a whole bunch of stuff for like a quarter, 50 cents. There was this whole time life series in the seventies and they put out old, the old West and I was like collecting them all. And so I read my, mine was like the California, Washington, you know, mm-hmm. all the lumber stuff. And I, my steampunk stories were actually inspired by the gold rush oh. from those books. I was just curious, are they selling? Do you find that that particular historical era has an audience and they're interested in it? Well, um, they seem to be selling. I do still get royalties. They've been out for a while. Um, in fact, I just got word that a publishing company in Romania has um, picked it up, has paid for the rights, and is translating it into Romanian, which is exciting. You know, I'm, I'm very happy about that. I wonder how they even found me. It seems like Romania is so far away. You know, they would never have heard of me. But um, the people... I don't know. They've done, they've done well. And they're the... It's my historicals. It's won the awards. Um... They, the others have finaled, but it's the historicals that got me the Rita and, and the Carol and, and the Christie. And, um, I, you know, it's it, the, the reason I started writing those was because, you know, they talk about the book of your heart, you know, the book, writing the book of your heart. And, uh, of course, those of us that have become professional authors know that you just keep writing, you know, whether it's the book of your heart or not. But that particular one was the um, <clears throat> Major Kid Calloway because my father was a sawyer. He made his living and made a living for us by going out and cutting down trees, turning them into lumber, and he would be gone for long periods of time, uh, just basically out in the woods and he was always fascinated with the trees that he had heard about that were up in Michigan. He'd known some old sawyers from up there. And so he would talk about it. And so that whole era just began to fascinate me. Um, the post-Civil War, here's the thing that was so, so exciting to me, was the post-Civil War uh, in Michigan was such a melting pot. You had 
um, Southern soldiers, you had Northern soldiers, you had French Canadians coming down. All of these were coming into these lumber camps because Michigan in the, in post-Civil War was the, um, it was the lumber capital of the world and the United States was rebuilding and they were providing the lumber, you know, to rebuild the nation with. You also had, um, you had freed slaves and you had Native Americans and you had this melting pot of all these people working together and apparently working together very well. So it just, it just gave me a wealth of material to work with. Yeah, that's a really cool time period to read about. I always enjoy mm-hmm. this sort of mm-hmm. colonial and then up to like 1900 and then it was all cars and airplanes. And you know, and, <laughs> I don't know, that's fun. <laughs> and strangely enough, um, you would think that historical and Amish would be, you know, opposite things to write about, but they fed into each other as I did research because I would be at a friend's house who was Amish. And I remember being there and watching her daughter's um, iron with one of those sad irons that you put in the stove, you know, well, of course that's 1800s too. And so with the Amish, the old order Amish, they are so 1800s anyway, it kind of fed into each other. It was, it was interesting to me that I got to do both of those. Yeah, I could, I could definitely see that. I have an Amish uh, dining room table, so it's not just a fiction that's uh-huh. popular. It's like trendy to uh-huh. go to the Amish furniture store too out they, here. They do solid stuff. They're good carpenters. Yeah. Um, going back to Amish, do you have any thoughts on, is it a big enough niche that if people are, don't have a name or anything yet, and they're thinking, oh, this sounds like something I want to jump into. Do you think there's still room for authors to get in? Yes, because I'm seeing it every day. Um, and if they're good at marketing and if they write good books, they're doing well. Um, there's room. It is, it seems to be a growing market. All right. So, um, what are some tropes that differentiate Amish stories from the rest of the romance genre? I mean, obviously they feature the Amish, uh, but like maybe it's my preconceptions coming to the surface, but I would suspect that Amish romance would be fairly clean, for example, or like, uh, yes, it would be considered sweet and wholesome. And, um, you know, I was thinking about that. One of the things that I, that I found was in romance, even clean and wholesome romance, you may have some um, some violence, but with the Amish books, it was surprised me. The Amish are offended by any violence, and I think one of the other questions you had mentioned uh, for later was how the Amish reacted to my books. They think that it's very, very um, accurate because I try very hard to do that. But they really, you know, I've always got a mystery and a suspense um, thing in it. And they get very upset if there is a gun that appears. And it's hard. I guess we've become so desensitized. We don't realize, you know, how sensitive they are to the idea of violence because they are a very, very pacifist community and they have been you know four or five hundred years you know they i don't know how much you know about the history but they allowed themselves to be burnt at the stake and 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 killed rather than rather than fight back they believed that strongly in pacifism and still do so um yeah when i started trying to make things exciting by letting a gun show up and a gunman they were not happy with me at all but my other readers liked it so <laughs> that's one of them let's see another trope would be uh you can get more religious in these books because that's their life 
I mean, they, everything is, is God centered and family centered. And so probably it's, it's okay to get a little bit more religious with it. And I'm a Christian writer, so it's nice to help feel, feel like I have the freedom to do that. Um, no one's going to be upset if you, you know, quote scripture or something. Um, I would say the other big thing about it is just, there's a lot of horses in Amish books. <laughs> I'm running out of names for horses. <laughs> there's always those readers too, that if you get your horses wrong, they're mm-hmm. going to know because they have horses and they'll let you know, you have to do this after you ride a horse this long. <laughs> oh yeah. And one of my friends who's Amish, um, I had written her a letter and said, okay, I need to know, do you ever wear perfume? Is that, is that, forbidden or can you wear perfume she said oh we we wear perfume she said that's fine she said sometimes it smells like horse manure but we always have perfume on (laughs) um is what for as far as tropes go do you have to have or do you feel you have to have that if it's the female love interest it's from the amish community and the man comes in and wants to join it or does she ever leave or is that not allowed as far as what people expect well the amish I do not allow someone to marry outside of the Amish church and still be Amish. And so there's been way too many books written with, you know, will I leave or will he join or whatever? And the fact of it is, is people just don't join the Amish religion and they're not evangelistic for one thing, but it's just so hard. And I think, I I don't know, you could probably, it's probably less than 10 people that have ever joined from the outside, the Amish church in, let's say, the past 20 years or so, and been able to stick it out because it is a much harder life than what people realize. So um, that's done, and that's probably done over much. What I do, which is a little bit different, is I was so intrigued by the interaction of the Amish and their English neighbors their non-Amish neighbors. When I got to Sugar Creek and really began to spend time up there and stayed with the Amish and all that, I had thought they were more um, insulated than what they are, and they welcome friendship. And they, um, they're they supportive to their neighbors and vice versa. And so I like to combine that. In my first book, I had uh, my heroine is a cop in Sugar Creek, but she has three Amish aunts because her father had left the Amish church. And so because she's not Amish, she's never been shunned or anything. She's basically their support network. They're older, older women. And, um, you know, that creates some interesting conflicts, you know, when you're dealing with the English and the Amish. So, um, I've had a lot of fun with that and it's interesting to me. Yeah, I think the culture co- conflicts are always good for romances or, you know, give you a conflict without having to have gunmen necessarily yes, or, you know, the yes. violence. Yes. Um, so you mentioned that the category is still possibly authors could jump into it if they uh, kind of do the research, hopefully, and do good mm-hmm. covers and whatnot. Is there anything, any advice you would give to somebody that is hoping to transition into Amish romance? Just as you said, they need to do their homework. They need to know what they're talking about. Uh, You can't just read a couple Amish novels and suddenly jump in because there's so many preconceptions that are wrong. And so it, and, and the Amish readers know that they've studied this and they will catch you up, you know, if you get something wrong. So it would just be, if you're, if you love the idea of writing for the Amish, if you, 
if you respect the lifestyle and, and I do because I have seen how hard it is for them to do what they do. Um, then I'd say, yeah, I'll go for it. Absolutely. It's definitely, like I said, Kalytics say it's a, it's a very hot niche market and continues to be so. So it'd be a great one to jump into. You're making me want to jump into it. I'm like, no, I can't keep up with what I'm trying to write already. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. So we're going to transition into Hollywood and then just a bunch of different other topics and things like sure. that. Um, sure. So the, the general consensus is when it comes to Hollywood, uh, don't pursue them. But I know that Hallmark has a different kind of ses- mm-hmm. system or setup. Mm-hmm. Can you explain a little bit about that and then any advice you might have for authors who are wanting to get their books made into Hallmark movies? Well, they do have a system set up, you know, go ahead and send your books in. I haven't, I haven't pursued that because I've gone through different channels and they were not channels that I pursued the first book. I, one of the things that people are surprised about is I didn't even know it was going to be turned into a movie until two weeks before they began filming. And it had been in pre-production for a year. Yeah. Yeah. My public, my publisher did not, um, tell me. And I think they thought that the, the studio was supposed to contact me, but the studio thought that the publisher was going to contact me. And because the, because the publisher owned my book and had basically, they wrote a deal for all 50 books at once. The love finds you series. They just, you know, wrote a, you know, went ahead and made a contract. So none of the authors that had their books written or had their books turned into movies knew about it ahead of time very much. I was the first one that was turned into a movie. I think there's been three or four of them done since. Um, and I found out when a librarian from the Sugar Creek area called me and said, would you come speak to our library patrons about the mo- about your movie? And I said, what movie? because I didn't know a thing about it. And so she told me what little she knew. It had been all over the papers up there because they were going to film right in Sugar Creek. And so I ended up being in a situation where I called. It was Mission Pictures was the name of the company. And I'm thinking it's probably, um, you know, two guys in ponytails and, um, you know, Birkenstocks with one camera that they borrowed, you know, that's going to be my movie. But I called out to is in Hollywood. I called mission pictures and I'm on the phone to a receptionist saying, I'm the author of this book that they're turning into a movie. Does anybody want to talk to me? <laughs> you know? And so finally, Um, I did, uh, the producer got back with me, very apologetic. He had no idea that I didn't know about it. And so, um, he was already in Sugar Creek. They were ready to start filming and he invited me up. He said, please come up. He said, I want to take you to dinner. I want to talk to you. The director wants to talk to you. We're going to show you where all it's going to be filmed. And so I did, I went up, um, it, it was impressive because they, the director and the producer really wanted to know what was in my mind when I was writing the book. They'd had so many questions and they were lovely to work with. They gave me permission to come and be on set as much as I wanted to. And so I rented a hotel room and I stayed for, you know, the duration and it was amazing. I learned so much, but the only thing that I was told by the by the um, director was you can tell me anything you want just not in front of the 
actors. Just don't, you know, correct me in front of the actors. And he was such a great director. I never had to correct him on anything. It was just a wonderful experience all the way. But yeah, so it was a, what happened was uh, one of the producers picked up the book, read it, liked it and said, we need to make a movie about this. And then they pursued the other books. And so, yeah, that was how it happened. They came to me. Um, it's kind of like, you know, lightning striking, you know, you don't really expect that to happen, but it did. Then the next movie was by the same producers because they, you know, they liked how this one turned out. So then they did the uh, next movie in Uncommon Grace, uh, with Hallmark and, um, you know, with that one, it was me, you know, I, um, I actually had the rights, uh, the movie rights to that book. And so I was able to do the negotiation and, and everything with that, um, got paid more because I was in control, which is really good. And if anyone signs contracts with traditional publishers that do not give them the movie rights, they need to rethink that because I remember when my, um, when my, um, agent was reading me the contract and that, you know, a little thing came up and I remember just laughing saying, Oh yeah, like I'm ever going to get a movie made. And then by golly, I did. So, um, anyway, I would, anyone who, if this does happen to people, I've had other authors, um, contact me and say, I've been approached by a movie studio you know, for my book. And I think part of that is it's getting easier to get in because there is just so much content needed these days. And, um, of course for romance writers, you know, Hall Hallmark is a good, a good venue. But, um, one of the things I always tell them is, and I wish I'd had someone I could have asked. I, I didn't know who to ask anything from. But um, for the second movie, I actually had a really good IP attorney uh, recommended who works in Hollywood and who got me a great deal. He was worth every penny I paid him. And he kept me from making a lot of mistakes. And um, he was actually someone recommended by its um, <clears throat> William Shatner's agent, longtime agent, is a friend and a mutual friend. And he said, there are so many attorneys in Hollywood, but he said, talk to this guy and he's, he's good. He knows what he's doing. And I've been very, very happy about it. And so if anyone gets a movie deal, feel free to contact me and I'll give you his contact information. And I guarantee he'll do a good job and he knows what he's doing. That's excellent to know. And it's sort of, that's sort of what I was going to talk about. And my questions here is, uh, so that's, you know, a lawyer. And I know that, uh, from just research into this sort of thing, that there's a lot of, of intermediary people that might be involved when you're going to go from book to movie and, and entertainment lawyer is, is one that will be there no matter what. Mm-hmm. Uh, others include things like agents, uh, specific to, to, you know, uh, production company, uh, and then, um, managers. So I assume you didn't have either of those uh, in this case. I've actually been warned against that. I've heard that um, as well. Yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot of, of... It slices the percentages down with each additional person in the mix. <laughs> well, one of the things that my, um, my attorney told me, he said, you know, he said, there's he said, this is a whole other culture out here. And he said, there's a lot of people that are 
looking for someone like you. He said they're looking for someone who is ignorant about the business, but who is talented. And he said, you've got to be really smart because there's a lot of sleazy stuff that goes on in Hollywood. I mean, if you want to give your books away and never get paid for them, there's plenty of people who will take them and they will sign you to contracts. Uh, don't do not sign an option agreement at all until you have an, uh, an IP attorney look at it. It um, because the option agreement, even though it just seems like, well, you're just giving them the option for six months or whatever. Uh, it really does um, have the language in it that controls what happens when the movie comes out, if the movie comes out. I've got another one. I've got another movie series, or it's a series of books. It's my um, Manitoulin, um, let's see, Rise Lighthouse. It's my Manitoulin series, and Hallmark has option for that. And um, I, it would be out by now except for COVID. Everything has shut down there. But um, it was just so wonderful to be able to have this attorney reading it, looking at it, negotiating for it, getting more money for me. Um, and it was great. So, yeah, that's that's important. I don't know that – I don't know. I'd be very, very leery of managers and agents at this point. Get your get my get my guy, and then ask him what he thinks. Right, that, that makes sense. Um, so yeah, it's funny. Uh, at the very uh, conference where I met you, or at least where we we crossed paths, uh, there was a big thing about uh, how to handle uh, you know Hollywood coming and knocking, and most of it was about getting them to walk away because like mm -hmm. it's yeah. so important to not have to have to find out if they're actually serious about this or if they're just trying to get another IP under their belt. Joe, if you remember um, when Chris was teaching that class, at the very end, she had a contract there that she had marked out names that she said, this is the worst one I've ever seen. That was my contract. That was my option agreement that I had been offered. Wow. And it was, and, and my, my um, IP attorney, he said, I've never seen anything this bad before. What they were trying to get me to sign was criminal. Well, not really criminal, but it was very unfair. And so, yeah, Chris is very, very leery and um, uh, with good reason because she and Dean have been through so much this way. But, yeah, but when it's a legit, it's it's wonderful to get to watch the words. In, in Love Finds You in Sugar Creek, the scriptwriter that they hired um, used a lot of my dialogue. And it is indescribable to say what it felt like to hear the words that I had made up in my head and to hear them being voiced by really talented actors. And they came alive to me. And uh, there was a couple times I was just standing there in a corner crying because it was just such an amazing experience. Uh, I mentioned the thing about the, um, the, you know, not knowing if it was going to be anyone legit or not that was going to be making the movie. But when I saw in my research that Kelly McGillis was going to be in it, um, at that point I knew it was going to be a real honest to goodness movie because of course she had starred with, um, you know, she'd starred in, um, Top Gun and Witness. And it was like, I had always admired her as an actress. And that was another thing that was so amazing was getting to just sit there and watch the other actors do their thing in between. And it was like, Oh, it's Kelly McGillis. This is, this is, is this real? <laughs> I, I still have that, uh, that contract 
in my room in a folder. I, I, had, I hung on to it. Uh, so uh, now we know like uh, there are things that you potentially might look out for uh, in those contracts. Mm-hmm. Are there any specific things that you sort of should look for in the event that you like get to the point where you feel like you've got a legitimate thing going on? Are there things like you should specifically ask for in, uh, in a contract? Oh my, it's been a long time since I looked at one. Um, I'm drawing a blank there. I'll see if I can come up with something later, but I, I think, I think if you've been in the writing business long enough and have, have had your sign out of contracts, you'll pick up on it. I didn't have to have my attorney tell me that it was a bad contract. It was just very, very noticeable. Uh, one thing was, let's see, signing your book for all rights for all time. I think one of them was in anything that might be found in the universe. There was some kind of language <laughs> that was like, Oh, it cannot be, I don't have control over it on Mars. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's funny. It's funny how, like, and sometimes it's like magic words that, that uh, seem sort of harmless. And then you realize how big they are, like the word ancillary. It's like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, blah, blah, blah. And ancillary rights and ancillary rights yeah. includes film rights. If you know, yeah. Yep. So yeah, uh, it's amazing the sort of um, the sort of magic words that that a lawyer will instantly know and be able to wave off. Uh, yeah, definitely worth having a lawyer when when contracts start oh, yeah. showing up. Oh yeah. Okay, so um, Jacob's been chatting with me over text here. Oh, good, cool. So I got I got the scoop um, on pricing. So he's saying okay. releases full price. But after there's three or four into the series, then you guys drop the price on the first one. And full price is $9.99 for $80,000 mm-hmm. and $5.99 for about $40,000. And mm-hmm. he says once there's the series has been going for a little bit, then he'll um, periodically fluctuate between $2.99 and $0.99, cents basically as a lead-in to get people hooked on the series. And he mm-hmm. says he hasn't found a sweet spot for the novellas that are about 40,000 words long. Um mm-hmm. He prices them a little bit higher and there was some pushback on that initially, but mm-hmm. you guys haven't seen a lot of issue with that anymore. Um, so people mm-hmm. apparently are getting, you know, more use of that. Um, these prices are more similar to traditional price books. And so it was, when I was looking at your books, I was having a hard time telling which ones were indie versus which ones were traditionally published just mm-hmm. because of the price. Cause you know, indies usually priced mm-hmm. really, really low. Um, and, um, but he does have, I mean, but you do have a bunch of traditionally published books. And so it would make sense that your readers are used to spending more mm-hmm. for your books. Um, mm-hmm. he also told us to take it easy on you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be my boy. <laughs> um, and then he says the print books are usually 1499, um, for full length and then 999 for a shorter for 40,000 ones. And then he says that, um, he hasn't that you're not in KDP select, which I did notice. And I forgot to ask you about, um, and that there, you guys are experimenting with Derek, which is his brother and your son with his books mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. KDP select, but haven't seen the return. Like some who only do select mm-hmm. do, which mm-hmm. actually makes sense. You know, I mean, you, I, I've seen a lot of people saying that if you're not releasing really frequently, then KDP select doesn't work for some genres and it's other genres. Mm-hmm. It works really well. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, what kind of, um, do you have any, any thoughts on that? Any of that? You know what? Um, I'm really, I'm really blessed with those two sons because Andrea, I just pay attention to my writing and Jacob takes care of it. And whatever he says goes because 
And Derek too, Derek's all into the marketing. And so we've kind of got this family publishing company going on and my job is to produce content. And when they say, okay, we need a newsletter. I write the newsletter. I just, I kind of obey my kids when it comes to uh, my business, but so far it's working out very well. So that actually leads me to another question um, for, so working with family when it comes uh-huh. to doing all of this, do you have any advice or tips for any of the authors who want to do it with a, a kid or a, a parent or a spouse or anything like that? Well, it just depends on, on their personalities on whether or not you can do it. I mean, just because their relatives should be someone that you hire, but um, if it's someone that you trust, uh, who better than, than your son or daughter or husband or whatever, you know, I mean, it's, um, it's nice because, we live very close together. All three sons are about five minutes away. And, uh, one is not really in the publishing business with us, but he is, uh, he's got a master's in English, you know, and he helps with various things, but, um, we're able to have a business meeting at the drop of a hat We're a, they're coming over Saturday morning. We're going to map out some more as far as our launch plans. And, um, so it's just working out really well for us. And there's, I've loved it because it gives us, there's an excitement to this. You know, every book that we come out is a family project the grandkids are involved in it. Everyone's involved in each book. And it's, it's like a family, um, now I can't say hobby because it's more important than that, but I think it brings us closer because we're working on something and I do write inspirational. And so it's not just writing books. I, the books that I write, I try to leave people with a great deal of hope. And, um, I, I had one woman write me that my book had kept her from committing suicide and, you know, I'll write forever for free for something like that. So it's a mission you know, as well as a business. And that is important to our family as well. That's really awesome. Um, I, I kind of feel the same way with my books. Like I write books that are, I mean, they have scary things in them, but they're generally uplifting and, you know, happier mm-hmm. endings, even within a series mm-hmm. where things aren't fully tied off. And I know that my readers have come to expect, expect that from me, you know, they, they say mm-hmm. they finished my books feeling good about themselves. And I'm like, yeah. well, that's good to know. I, I want that. You know, I don't want them to feel so much angst that they're depressed for, you know, (laughs) a long time. Oh, yes. And right now, I think it's especially important for people to have. They write, people read for escape. And right now, but you know something, when I was looking at the Calytics things that really surprised me was there was a huge dip in uh, people, at least in the romance um, genre, there was a huge dip during the beginning months of COVID. Um, and I would have thought there would have been a spike and I've been kind of pondering that about why there was this dip. Um, Jacob said, perhaps it was depression. You know, everyone went through, uh, you know, just feeling like, you know, the ground had been pulled out from under our feet or something for a while. We all felt like we were in the twilight zone. It's starting to build again, but it could be that it could have been something like having to deal with distance learning with the children. You know, I mean, suddenly your kids were going off to school and now suddenly they're at home under feet and there's not as much time to read. So I don't know. I, I can attest to that as an author, though our kids are homeschooled anyway. But, you know, I mean, it, things have just been so off whack, you know, just it's just been crazy. I haven't been reading very much lately either. And mm-hmm. I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't know. My brain's just not really configured. Mm-hmm. Um 
I did have a question about the awards that you've received. Um, what advice do you have for authors who are wanting to have their books recognized this in this way and have, and has having those awards helped? Uh, as far as advice, no, I don't have any because it's just a matter of learning the craft, you know, writing the best book you possibly can, having good editors. Um, I don't know how many of those now accept indie published books, but more and more of the large contrast tests are accepting them. Uh, I think it helps to be able to put it on the back of your book. You know, a lot of people really do pay attention to read winners. Um, and so that, that has helped sales. But I think the biggest impact that that has had has been my own validation. I don't know of any author that doesn't doubt themselves a lot. And for instance, Katie Calloway, the book that won the Rita Award, um, when I finished writing that book, I turned to my husband because the Love Finder and Sugar Creek, my first book, had done fairly well. It'd been in Walmart, that sort of thing. And I said, this book I'm getting ready to send to my editor is such a mess that it is going to ruin my career. They are going to tell me to never contact them again. And I believed it. And just, I mean, I think authors are sometimes the absolute worst judges of their books. And it won the award. I know it was a good book because it won the award. Um, I, you know, whenever I start feeling like, um, like I'm a pretender, you know, that I don't really know what I'm doing and I really don't know what I'm doing, but somehow it, it, it works out. I, I think, you know, there's been quite a few people who thought I could write and that's maybe I'll keep writing a little bit more because apparently some people like reading it. So yeah, it's the validation and it helps, it helps the sales. All right. That's excellent. And validation, I completely understand because mm -hmm. I, I will trust someone else's opinion of my stuff way more than I'll trust my own. Mm -hmm. But uh, so well, this you remember, you remember the story of uh, Stephen King throwing Carrie into the trash can yeah. and his wife retrieving it. Um, you know, that's just, it seems like every professional writer I get to know that's, we all, we all fight that. I, I don't really think I know any who don't, you know, but you know, it's just what we struggle against. I have I have heard that uh, imposter syndrome is basically when your taste is a, is a step or two beyond your skill. So it doesn't mean you don't have skill. It just means you got good taste. Oh, I like that. That is really true. That's exactly, you know you could do better, but you don't know how. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, all right. So this is where I would have asked about how your books were received in the Amish community. But since we've covered that, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, writing to market. Because we talk a lot on the show about writing to market. It's typically a, uh, you know, if you can write to market, then it's recommended that you do so. But we always emphasize that you should be writing to market that you think you can write well. And in your publishing journey, uh, it sounds like your first two markets that you wrote to, but you definitely wrote to market because you were essentially assigned markets to write to. So right. I guess the question I would have is, uh, let's say, you know, back then, uh, if they had, like, hey, we'd like you to write a book in X market. Like, do you feel you could have done well in whatever they'd assigned you, or do you feel like you had a wheelhouse that you had to work toward? Mm, that is such a good question. I think it would have been impossible for me to have written well in a genre that I have not read. Um, I, I don't think I'd be a very good sci-fi writer. Um, I haven't read a lot in it, and I certainly don't have a science background. Um, I would have 
<laughs> I was so desperate. I probably would have tried. I don't know how well it would have turned out, but um, yeah, the whole wheelhouse, as far as the Amish and the historicals were definitely there. Um, for one thing, growing up, my, my life was very similar to the Amish, even though I was an Amish, the whole rural background and all that fed into it very well. Um, and I loved history. So writing histories was good, but, um, I think the biggest, I think it might stretch a, per, a writer's craft to attempt to write in a genre that they're uncomfortable in. But, um, you know, I don't, I don't think it would be a good idea because you have to love what you write. One of the things that I would never, ever suggest people do is, is to chase trends. Um, because by the time you've got the book out there, it's, and, and I don't know, I, I can't imagine chasing trends to create good literature, you know, but I don't know. Uh, we wanted to finish up with a couple marketing questions. Uh, Especially since you said you're selling your novels for nine ninety nine, that's pretty good for an indie author. Uh, I think people are going to be wondering, hmm, <laughs> what can I do nine ninety nine for my novels? Uh, would you mind telling us sort of what you do these days when you launch a new book? Yes, and you know we did discuss that um, as far as keeping the. I I, I did want to keep the cost with my, you know, commensurate with my uh, traditional publishers because. I didn't feel like I was putting out anything less than what they, what I'd already put out. I felt like my skill was increasing. I felt like, uh, the quality of the books we were putting out, you know, just physically, the, the quality of the books was even better. And so, um, I, I, and you know, sometimes people don't value what comes cheap. And so if suddenly my books had dropped, my indie books had dropped. I think my, readers would have wondered what was going on. The other thing is, is I don't think most of my readers have any idea that I'm an indie author anymore. Um, I don't think they care. You know, I mean, my publishing company is uh, LJ Emery uh, Publishers.com. It's from my three sons, middle names and initials. And, but it sounds very impressive. You know, it sounds like a real publisher and we are a real publisher. And so people reading that are not going to say, oh, this is an indie author. Um, so as far as launching, uh, again, this is Jacob. He gave me notes, so I'm going to be reading here a little bit. Um, so I won't mess up because he takes care of all the launching. But here's one thing that I'm doing right now. I'm collaborating with 13 other Amish authors on an anthology that will be coming out November 10th. Um, it's called Amish Christmas Miracles. And we are pushing hard with this, you know, we're combining our resources, you know, to get this book out there and sold. And because of that, I just came out with my latest Sugar Creek book. It's a full length, 80,000 word novel. And it's the fourth in the Sugar Creek series. It's called Bertha's Resolve. And so we decided because of the anthology to do a soft launch for it so that we wouldn't have, um, uh, we didn't want to create newsletter fatigue or social media bombarding or anything. So we've just, it's published. We haven't really said anything about it yet. Um, I just recently, I mean, this is what we're doing for this particular launch. I just recently hired a graduate student to take over my social media. I still post and I still create content, but she's the one that knows how to get it out there. And, um, 
that has been a big step for me to actually just hire someone to do that. And it's been wonderful. Um, some of the new things we're trying, you might be interested in this. Uh, right now, we are promoting a large print uh, hardcover edition, and we're promoting it to libraries. This is for Birth is Resolved. And that's something where we're learning how to do that. There's something like 16,000 uh, libraries in the United States. And so we're promoting to those. We're getting mailing lists and all that. Um, I'm right now, I'm dabbling, well, for the first time, we're going to do an audiobook. We're doing it ourselves. Um, of course, I hired a voice artist um, to finish. It's going to be the. It's actually going to be Love Finds in Sugar Creek, the one that the movie was made on. Uh, she's working on that right now. I just got her first. Um, of course, we had to audition a lot of voice artists, but I just got the first fifteen minutes back, and I just love it. She's done a wonderful job. Uh, and so we're going to be using that as part of our launch uh, when we get started on that. And it's going to be a springboard for our promotion for the series. Of course, I will do regular newsletter blast. Um, you know, there's always the social media focus, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We'll do the free and paid advertising, the Facebook, Amazon, and BookPub, etc. And we are dabbling with the idea of doing a Kickstarter. Um, this is something that Derek and Jacob are, are really studying. Um, seems to be working well for a lot of authors and we're trying to figure out if we want to go that way. Awesome. sounds like you've got a lot of, uh, new things in the works. So the audiobook should do great. If there's already a movie out, it's mm. like, Oh yeah. Hey, <laughs> of I'm course hoping. we need that. <laughs> I'm hoping it was really interesting, uh, getting to listen to the auditions, some were so very inappropriate. I mean, this was an Amish book, and we had one. He was a wonderful reader, but he had a very thick Irish accent, <laughs> you know, and that just really wasn't going to work. But um, there was one woman whose voice was um, just perfect. You know, I just thought it fit so well, but she didn't know how to pronounce a lot of the Amish words. And so I took my phone to one of my Amish friends, gave her a list of the Amish words, you know, the Pennsylvania Dutch words that was said in the book. And she just went ahead and read them all into the, into the tape and then talked a little bit with me. She has an accent, even when she's speaking English. And when I got the 15 minutes back, the voice artist had nailed it perfectly so and we're also one other thing about the voice artist is i contacted her yesterday to see if she would be willing to do a video a short video of herself actually reading the book you know how she goes about it about recording it and she's all excited about it because we'll be using that as part of our marketing plan and she likes being promoted yeah, that sounds great. I imagine with so many uh, voice talent coming out of New York that they don't have a lot of Amish people coming <laughs> coming into the city there. To you know, my uh, narrator yeah. was giving me a hard time because I've got an Australian in, in the oh. new book, and she's like, "Oh my god, I can't do an Australian <laughs> accent." <laughs> oh, but you know, I think we're getting a lot of um, a lot of real talent because you know, there's so many actors and actresses that are out of work right now. You know, nothing's really happening in Hollywood. So why not go ahead and start reading books? I agree with that, um, especially since, um, you know, narrating is, is kind of like a performance thing. And uh -huh. a lot of them, you know, it's just like being in a cartoon, you know, uh -huh. they're not, you're not going to be seeing the person's face, but you're hearing their voice. Um, 
So we're going to go ahead and wrap up. Um, you've already mentioned the box set, but could you um, mm-hmm. mention where people can find that if they're interested in reading Amish? Um, it, it is oh. an Amish. It's not yes, Amish. The it Amish, is Amish. Amish Christmas Miracles, the one I'm doing with the other Amish authors. Yes, it's definitely Amish. Um, a lot of good writers in that anthology. It's, of course, it's going to come out in ebook. It's, I think it's still 99 cents for a pre-order. It is. Uh, after November 10th, it'll be full price. And I saw one of the, the women who's in charge of this got the, the hard copy in. That is a thick book. Um, there's a lot of pages in it. It looks real good, but, um, yeah, they can, it'll be on Amazon. It'll be on Barnes and Noble, just, you know, all the regular things for, you know, nothing different about it, but that's the name of it. Awesome. And, um, which of your books would you like to have people get pointed to and where can people find you online? Well, serenabmiller.com is my website. And, um, as far as books, this latest book that I brought out, which you're familiar with the movie, it's Bertha's story. It's her story of her time as an Amish woman in Haiti. And, uh, as a young woman, of course, there's a love interest there. And so it's my first book that I've done. You know, you have the contemporary Bertha, today's Bertha, and then I do the historical thing back and forth. And I'm getting some really good reviews from people about it. So probably my latest book, Bertha's Resolve. And it's, oh, it's been so much fun to write. <laughs> Look, It looks like Lindsay's got a visitor, a visit from Willow. I'm betting that's Willow. Oh. Her dog is kissing her. <laughs> oh, this is Cutter and Willow is complaining. So I'll just mute myself for this. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I love my dogs. Anyway. Okay. So yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Serena. It was awesome to see you. And I wish so much. I mean, we had plans to meet up again this past, this past October, this October. Yeah. And COVID yeah. ruined it all. But Well, you know, we're supposed to be getting together again in June. I don't see that that's going to happen either with the way things are going. Yeah. Nope. I agree with that. It's too bad. Breaking my heart. Was that your first, when we met, was that your first time with the Oregon workshop? Yep. It was. Yeah. Yep. It's It's a a special thing. anyway okay so yeah thank you again serena for joining us and um thank you for everyone to everyone for listening and to joshua pearson for producing the show uh you can find the show notes or leave a comment or question at sixfigureauthors.com with the number six um and um we honestly should just probably change that out to say come join our facebook group and ask a question there because that's what people yes. do um but yeah thank you again serena and we'll talk to everyone okay. later bye good see bye 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 so long everybody <laughs>